Welcome to Anger Management. This week we're meeting with Daniel Allen, who is a uh, one of these great minds of Harvard, and uh, I, I love, love her. I love, love yeah, no, I love yeah. her. My ideal life would be to be around her twenty four seven. I think we took her class in the fall about ancient political theory, uh, but she's also writing about digital age and what it means to be citizen in the digital age. We talked about that. What's the what's the present moment? What's the a way that citizenship constitutes itself. And she has she's thinking about this moment a lot. She writes um in Washington Post columns, but uh one interesting I think part of this conversation is the way she thinks about how to structure your own agency, how not to be passive in this, you know, critical moment for democracy. Good morning, Danielle. It's a pleasure. Good morning. Glad but, to talk with you. With banana bread and coffee. Yeah. <laughs> um, we talk about what's happening. Um, I, I would start really with the broad picture, and we can sort of move on to maybe the nasty present or step back and forth. Um, looking at the present from your perspective, or looking at the future from your perspective, where do you get the inspiration? What What should we look at to find out how to reconstruct democracy, democratic discourse from antiquity or from the, the, the ideas that you find valuable? That's a great question. Um, so, I mean, on one level, my answer is just personal and simple, which is that for a variety of biographical reasons, I have a kind of just deep love of democracy and a deep belief in the importance of people organizing their own lives and being able to set direction for themselves. Um, and I see democracy as functional when it's bound by constitutionalism, bound by strong protections for rights. Um, it depends on openness and pluralism as well and things like that. So um, so I have my own kind of just set of personal commitments that help me. Um, but more generally, um, I think it's, uh, you know, I... I was listening to the former governor of Massachusetts um, the other day talk about the current situation, and he kept using the phrase, you know, the, the people gets the government it deserves. And I more or less believe that. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, uh, the big takeaway from this election is that in the U.S. at any rate, sort of, you know, we're, we're not a healthy people, basically. Um, and so if we don't like the situation that we're in, um, there's a heck of a lot of work to be done to um, restore, in effect, social health. Um, so, at any rate, I, mean, I think there's a lot of energy that comes right now uh, from sort of a sense of a shared um, adversary in the figure of Trump. And I think the challenge is to convert that sense of um, solidarity um, in face of a shared adversary into solidarity um, for the sake of a common purpose. Um, that seems to me like the job. But, you know, the adversary gives us an inspiration, the um, human need to be able to contribute to building a world where one feels secure uh, is also a source of inspiration. And then the goal is to try to um, build solidarity toward common purpose. Um, can you expand a little bit about what you said on social on social health and mm. why, what do you, why you what do you mean with that this is not a healthy people? Is it about inequality? Is it about race? What is it? Um, um, I mean, it's a long list of things. Yeah. Um, so. I mean, yes, it's inequality, but that's not necessarily inequality in sort of the ways we've been repeating a story to ourselves for the last 15 years or so. I mean, yes, there's income inequality, but that also tracks an urban-rural split. Um, the urban areas are divided with regard to income inequality, but also, you know, the urban areas are much wealthier than rural areas. Um, there are sort of very different uh, ways of life um, in the country. Nothing wrong with that. It's sort of this big country room for lots of diversity. But the question is, um, can you build um, a structure that gives people enough opportunity to interact with each other that there is at least a sort of minimal mutual understanding, uh, mutual acceptance of people's making their own choices within their own communities and things like that. Um, and that's something that we haven't been able to do lately um, for a lot of reasons. So um, the, you know, there's just strong sense of mutual antagonism, um, you know, genuine, visceral, <laughs> mutual dislike. And you can't sustain a democracy when that's the kind of dominant ethos um, in a citizenry. Have, have you, uh, uh, in preparing for the interview, I read a little again of, of, of your work and 
our declaration is this fascinating study, basically, of in a way how this document relates to the question of freedom and equality. And and I I would be interested in because you ask about equality. Um, there's a broad approach to equality, and then there's a very specific approach to equality. And so what you said suggests that you think about the the structure you talk about. We have to figure out a way to do that. Do right. You, could you elaborate a little on, on that? It goes, sure. I think, even to, to questions of uh, ownership or production, um, mm -hmm. uh, knowledge production, which always has a co mm -hmm. in, in, in front. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I think... For me, one of the important um, challenges of conversations about equality is we don't take enough time to, to go ahead and say which kind of equality we're talking about. Is it an economic equality issue? Is it political equality? Is it moral equality? Is it social equality? And so um, because we don't clarify which category we're talking about, we often talk past each other and don't understand each other. Most of the conversation about inequality in the U.S. in the last 15 years has been about income and wealth inequality. On the one hand, and also issues of racial inequality, right? Those have been the two dominant things. They're important, but there's a problem of political inequality as well. And I think that's the sort of equality issue that surfaced in this election that took people by surprise. So I think, you know, a lot of the Trump vote was about people who um, resent being outside the decision-making class, in effect. Um, I feel very distant from... <coughs> policy, what government's doing, from things that are shaping their lives. And at any rate, um, so I think, you know, democracy has to think about all of these kinds of dimensions of equality and figure out how they interact with each other. So, yes, I mean, when I'm talking also about a healthy polity, I am talking about a place where um, the decision-making structures work to connect even ordinary people to them in a meaningful way. That somehow has to be part of the aspiration of democracy. Um, And you know we don't have that at the moment, and that also it, it tracks income inequality. So the people who don't have that political access and power and influence are also the people who are getting the short end of the stick economically, and that's true across the sort of ethnic or racial spectrum. Um, so that's a very toxic environment when you have those you know different forms of inequality converging in that way. How would you? Where do you start? Uh, where do you start? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I think um, so. This is to to shift a little bit to partisan politics, but um, so a key feature of the Democratic Party's approach to politics um, in the last few years has been the view that, as people put it, demography is destiny, that the just underlying population changes in the country will give the Democratic Party sort of such majorities in places like California and Arizona and Georgia that they don't need to worry about um, winning votes in sort of the middle section of the country that voted for Trump this time around. Um, that's basically a mistake from my point of view. The, the notion that a major political party should, in effect, abandon a part of the country um, sort of misses the whole point of democracy, which is not that you'll win everybody. Unanimity is impossible. Even, you know, major majority is probably impossible. But nonetheless, the goal is still somehow to connect to every sort of different part or region of the country in some component and way. Um, so I think uh, rebuilding political equality is actually about rebuilding that aspiration to build a broadly connected political conversation. So I think to be concrete about it, um, in this country, it requires the Democratic Party to um, return to political contestation at the state level. Um, they've just abandoned the field. And so, you know, there's 33 Republican governors and um, in many states, there's a you know, complete control of the governor's house, the state legislature, the state senate, and that sort of thing. Um, and that's not good for the Republicans either. I mean, it gives them the impression that they have a kind of degree of control that goes well beyond uh, their genuine cultural authority within the population. Um, and it's, you know, in, it tempts them into various forms of extreme action, which we're currently all experiencing. Um, and again, that's because, you know, there's an insufficient kind of contestation at that state level where people get a you know, stronger sense of the genuine range of opinion, um, begin to find solutions that fit specific regions better. So um, so I, the short answer is, uh, so I think it's a matter of turning attention away from our national politics to our state-level politics. So I'm interested in this because um, I come from uh, from European political context where um, social democratic parties have been shrinking and losing power and Uh, are now at very low levels um, in the polls and in elections. And I think um, one issue that I've been 
thinking about is what you're talking about, that you're, um, they have been abandoning parts of their uh, former voter base, mm-hmm. bases. But in order to get those people back, I think it's important to recognize that that would also uh, change your, by necessity and by consequence, that would mean a change in your policy platforms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not sure. So you have to kind of be prepared to change mm-hmm. if you want to have let more people in, mm-hmm. so to speak. Yeah. And that's that's a very different <laughs> mindset from where politicians are right. today. What, how yeah. No, I agree with that. I mean, I think that's right. But I mean, I think I think we're due for some. Yeah, and I agree with you. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I, I'm just wondering how to turn these kind of big. Right, the elite institutions kind of used to sticking to power, used to you know having centralized decisions, and mm-hmm. turn it around to um, accepting that we need to let other people decide. Right. Well, um, so I mean, this is where you know you invoked my book, our Declaration about the American Declaration of Independence and the American Revolution, and it, it is actually a roadmap for answering that question, which is to say. Um, you know, you build alternative shadow forms of decision making um, that, um, you know, by ver- you know, just by you know, good old traditional old fashioned organizing, um, you bring together groups of people who, in various ways, are connected to actual decision making points, and you help them build an alternative conversation. Um, and then there's a sort of story about power and how you generate power in that context. But uh, the, what I'm trying to say is, in effect. You can sort of think of power in a few different categories, right? You can think of there's the power that comes from wealth and money and resources and yeah. capital, and then there's the power that comes from controlling um, the most dominant level of political institutions, the national government or federal government or whatever. Um, but then there's something called people power, and it's real. Um, and we see it operating periodically, right? I mean, you could say that, you know, in this country on the right, that's sort of what's happened with the Tea Party, is that they did figure out how to build an alternative um, party structure outside the major parties, and then they used that to to crack a major party and, and force it to change direction. Um, I don't agree with the direction that they are driving things, but I think they have provided an example of um, how people power can operate. I'm interested in, in that aspect, and in a way it ties into what Tila Scotchpole said, yeah. um, that, that she wasn't very... Uh, Hopeful that the institutions or the the mechanism of the institutions would help defeat Trump, but she was what she would call a civil society. She was right. talking about that. Um, so, so I would be interested. On the one hand, even though you shouldn't ask two part questions, that's not really two part <laughs> questions. I would be well, interested. This is a podcast, right? Not a press conference. I think we can handle two part questions. <laughs> so maybe you can elaborate on. The lingering question I'll that I had. I'll help you to follow um, up. <laughs> exactly. I promise it's not to be evasive. <laughs> so, so on the one hand, the Declaration of Independence, or the or the way the, the the political system, not the Declaration, but the way that the political system is constructed, is it true, or is it sort of a problem that is uh, uh, constructed on the fear of the populace? So um, is it constructed yes. like that, mm. or is that even a point? Uh, and on the other hand. <laughs> Uh, which I'm more interested in, which I have with Sophia yeah. Douglas, is, is uh, in another book, uh, t- Talking to Strangers, you, you very explicitly uh, and beautifully reconfigure this area of politics in, in a very different way, and it's not it's a mm-hmm. reductionist way of politics, I guess, to talk about politics right. as party politics, and, right. and this is what I hear from, from you, so that, mm-hmm. that we have to rethink. Right. And civil society is, is in a, it's a very, very crude and, and not very mm-hmm. imaginative term for thinking about how li- people live together. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and maybe that's, so let, let, let the fear of populists, maybe right. we will end there. But, but I'm really interested in how, how and it ties together. If, if, mm-hmm. if the one is a fear of populists or not, or not so if, but the politic, but the system is in a way too rigid, too structured, right. too, too mechanistic. And to reductionist, and and how how can you reconceive that the field of politics, as as you did, for example, around these beautiful terms of trust right. or loss? How can you reimagine in a way civic mm-hmm. civic life? So those are great questions. I'm going to go ahead and just try to break them into two. I mean, I see that you know, I understand the connections <laughs> between them, but so so on the first one. Uh, just because they're, they're, I want to say multiple things, but each one, that's the trouble. Um, so there was a debate um, in the Constitutional Convention about the degree to which 
the government was grounded on the idea of the people and the degree to which it rested on the notion of there being these 13 states that sort of made a treaty with each other and where elites wanted to protect against the power of the people. So the result um, in the Constitution was a compromise between those two points of view. So there is a kind of conventional line that the whole thing was anti-popular. That's not, I don't think, an accurate reading of the history. There were two sides that were pretty equally represented, and the result was a kind of mishmash of that. And anyway, so you know, we have the kind of the president based on a popular structure on the one hand, and then the Senate based on sort of state by state elite uh, sort of control structure, and these things fight with each other. Um, but so I think the more interesting thing about the um, you know misfit between the structure that was designed um, at the end of the 18th century and the current situation is a math problem. Okay. So the whole design depended on a basic sense of the demographic profile of the country. And that profile has changed radically in several important ways. The first is simply, um, you know, as with the whole world, this country now has the majority of its population living in urban areas, not rural areas. So this issue of density changes what representation means, right? I mean, the, the whole thing was built on the notion that the rural areas were more populated than the urban areas. And that's flipped. It's like the math doesn't work anymore, which is why you can have such a huge gap between the popular vote and the electoral college vote, right? This is the biggest gap we've ever had. I don't think the gap was supposed to get that big, right? And again, that's sort of a math problem. And similarly, you know, at the beginning, a representative in Congress represented about 20,000 people. And if you represent 20,000 people, obviously you can't talk to all of them, but you can talk to enough of them that you're kind of networked with that unit of representation. Now a member of Congress represents 800,000 people. That's a structurally completely different kind of operation. So I think you know that we do have a lot of work to do just to kind of you know, review the institutions from root to branch and kind of rethink the math of popular government. Um, and I don't know what that means in terms of sort of institutional redesign and things like that, but I do think that's a kind of core problem. That actually um, leads me to my answer to your second question, because you're asking me a question of um, how should we, say, in the 21st century, think of the relationships among political parties, um, civil society institutional politics, and the kind of um, effects on our common life that flow out of how citizens interact with each other. So let me just call that social politics or something like that alongside institutional politics. Um, and so what I am saying is, you know, I think the original architecture, the math of the original architecture, had the purpose of ensuring that social politics was the basis for institutional politics and that social politics would flow through the institutions and craft the shape of the decisions. And the math problem has meant that institutional politics and social politics have come very far apart from each other. So the, again, sort of the math problem, the institutional design problem is about how to put those things back together again. The only way I can see to do it, it does have something to do with ideas of subsidiarity and devolution and things like that. Um, and sort of actually doubling down on um, our kind of federalist structure, uh, trying to make that richer and thicker and so forth. So that, um, and I, you know, I honestly don't know what that means in concrete terms, but I don't think it's a problem that you can solve uh, by looking upward. I think you have to sort of look down to sort of smaller units. Um, but it is a sort of issue of how do you reconnect um, sort of smaller conversational units within society um, to the political institutions. I think that's what we've lost. Um, and you know, I think that's, you know, that's sort of what the damage is flowing from. <clears throat> Coming uh, to this question. That was from very abstract. Yeah. I apologize. <laughs> we'll so, get back to it. So I'm, 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 before meeting you today, we talked about the... Um, about the question of citizenship and mm. just coming at the thing you talked talked about now from kind of another angle, um, you have to be. Um, we were auditing your class in political philosophy last fall, and you made the important distinction at one point between the um, the ancient Greeks mm. who had this idea of uh, society about virtue and about how to lead the good life, mm -hmm. and the political aspirations were. Um, much more rich and much more ambitious uh, than our kind of liberal 
uh, project today, which is more about freedom from, and you know, you can be as unhappy as you want and as miserable as you want, as long as you kind of abide by the laws. Mm-hmm. And do we need to? And you've been thinking a lot about this, but what about what about what what's needed to be able to create those spaces for conversations and for active citizenship? Don't we need something more in terms of quality of life, in terms of ambitions for the, you know for the good? Mm-hmm. How do you think about that? And so that's an interesting question. I mean, I think people do have ambitions for. Um, I guess from the from the from from the political side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, yeah. Uh, sorry. <laughs> um, Again, I, mean, I, th- I know, I'm sure I sound as if I have way too much confidence in democracy, <laughs> especially given everything that's just happened. Oh. Um, but um, I do somehow believe, I'm trying to figure out why I believe this, um, that people can answer these questions for themselves, um, provided that there is actually the space to have the relevant kind of conversation. So... In other words, um, imagine uh, the level of a county. Um, so a county being some number of towns and cities kind of you know pulled together in a single grouping. And um, there's a lot of stuff to work on in that space from you know, sort of transportation infrastructure, uh, which is you know, at the core of economic opportunity questions, to um, even things that affect labor policy, labor opportunities in that space, um, to the structure of provision of various kinds of public services, um, including things that relate to health. So it may not be sort of in the hospitals and that sort of thing, but lots of um, ancillary kinds of um, health care offerings and so forth. And, um, you know, people have very strong views about the quality of life of where they live. Um, and I think if we, you know, I think tapping into that is a is a positive thing. The challenge is um, in any such space, you know, you'll have folks with resources who try to co-opt the conversation, co-opt the process, and um, you know, sort of drive things in the direction that they seek. So, for example, um, property taxpayers who don't want to see dollars flow to schools in areas where the property taxes are not as rich, and you get sort of really differential schools. So. Um, I think the challenge is how to establish a kind of baseline expectation for um, securing rights, securing opportunities and things like that as a kind of framework for people to have the debates within. Um, but then, um, you know, ask people to ask those quality of life questions about their own um, local areas uh, as much for the sake of sort of letting a conversation about those kinds of commitments sort of bubble up as opposed to being imposed top down. So I think, I guess what I'm trying to say when I'm working my way towards in my sort of abstract formulations is I do think the kind of national government has a really important role to play in terms of um, the sort of securing rights idea, securing rights for everybody in the population. Um, And we think of that job of securing rights as a legal job, and it is a legal job, I think it's not exclusively a legal job. I think um, there's a second piece of it, which is about um, clarifying, um, you know, sort of a set of standards um, that could be applied locally um, that count as sort of securing rights for population. But then you could sort of hand over that set of standards, you know, and let folks work with them themselves to figure out how to uh, make that happen in their own environment and give it more content from the point of view what kind of life they're trying to live together. But just um, tying to Karen's question, what I liked about the question, and and I guess what 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 <laughs> thanks you what, for, thanks what for was, reviewing. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm just trying to to make a, make a point here. Right. Um, um, I think I think it's interesting to that's what you said. You have to reimagine basically what it means to be a citizen, mm-hmm. uh, or you have to go back uh, yeah. to a very 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 so the starting point. Yeah, and this is also what I was trying to get at at the beginning. So, what is an antiquity there to to see? Right. Uh, where where's the um, emphatic saying? Yes, I am. Uh, member of this polity, mm-hmm. of this polis, um, um, 
how can you um, what's the right word how can you energize this sentiment in, on the individual level of, of belonging and, 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 and sharing a common right. sense of purpose um, which has been I, I think lost and, and lost I think yeah. uh, maybe in the liberal project maybe mm -hmm. this is a failure in the liberal project mm -hmm. and maybe this is a very European perspective maybe so if your perspective mm -hmm. here is, is a different one because you have a stronger sense of churches, community building, right. um, people do sort of stuff more than Europe. <laughs> Europe is maybe even more so, strangely. Yeah. But, but, but I like, I, th I thought there's, there's a, a fit. you have to rethink liberal, mm -hmm. the liberal project a little bit, I think. Well, I mean, I think there's truth to that. Um, so I think, um, oh, sorry. <laughs> um, so I mean, the way I, I, I tend to think about it, and this may be a little off base, but is, um, Unless if we just sort of think about intellectual traditions for a moment, um, you know, you still have the kind of construction of the liberal project from the 18th century through, say, the middle of the 20th century. And then you have, in the academy at least, a sort of massive critique of the liberal project um, on the basis of issues like uh, exclusion, sort of the exclusion of various voices from the liberal project, the idea that when, you know, sort of the liberal project makes a claim about sort of universal human equality or something, um, it's actually a coded claim that's just about, say, white men um, and so forth. And so you have, you know, decades of um, critique taking apart the idea that it's possible to have a common purpose, to have um, institutions that genuinely uh, protect all and so forth, or that somehow fend off domination. And um, it, as a part of that critique, you also get... Um, You, you get a sort of focus on the relationship between um, three different issues. I mean, political equality, social equality, economic equality, fairness, justice, and so forth. And, um, you know, the liberal tradition looks um, insufficient because it's focused on political equality. And it's kind of hooked up political equality for a dominant group to social inequality and economic inequality. Um, so... We don't, we've had these decades of critique that point to different standards in the sort of social and economic realm than the liberal project itself on its own achieved. And so, yes, I mean, I think there is a project now of reuniting and reintegrating those two points. Um, or you could think of it as, you know, re, you know unifying, um, integrating the liberal freedom and equality project with the pluralism project that's come from the other side. I think this is a doable thing. Um, I don't think that there is a kind of necessary tension between those two sort of sources of our inner intellectual tradition. Um, but I think that's kind of like what we're wrestling through. So, in other words, um, you know, the fights over issues of diversity, um, issues of immigration, issues of um, whether or not you can sustain liberal commitments and liberal welfare commitments, for example, if you don't have a homogeneous population. Um, you know, we're, we're working out exactly this issue through those fights. Um, at any rate, uh, as I said, I think that they can be integrated, and I think there are intellectuals who've been integrating these two things, but it hasn't kind of uh, helped uh, yet to um, you know, give people perhaps new guides in terms of the actual practice of politics. Uh, could you talk a little bit more about that? Because, I mean, that's a huge ongoing debate and mm -hmm. also in the context of uh, um, the rise of populism and um, the more and more nativist and uh, racist political discourses in both in Europe and here. And many claim that it takes a homogeneous uh, mm -hmm. population for that's what makes um, ambitious welfare state um, projects possible and so forth. You need mm -hmm. that kind of, you need to be able to see yourself right. clearly in the other to be solid, um, solidaristic. solidaristic. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit, little bit more about how you think about that and how pluralism and, mm -hmm. and equality can be combined? Mm -hmm. So... Um, I think an important part of this conversation, this may have come out in your conversation with Theta, I wonder if it did actually, um, is, again, um, I think one has to really um, question the idea that demography is destiny, which mm. plays a role in mm. our conversations in any number of ways. And one way of putting this, I mean, there's actually good um, empirical social science at this point, which shows that um, you sort of need to think of three 
things in relationship to each other. You've got your sort of set of demographic facts on the ground. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Who populates a given society. Um, at the sort of other end, you have a set of what people sometimes call social capital outcomes, right? How much trust is there in that society? How much willingness to share welfare benefits, et cetera? And you know, for a long time, the conversation has just sort of like drawn an arrow from the demographic facts to the social capital outcomes. Uh, but there's a thing in the middle, which is our institutional structures and organizational structures. And there's good evidence that how we organize those um, is actually what makes a difference in terms of whether a diverse population achieves positive social capital outcomes um, or not. Um, so, I and so what? What is it that those institutions and organizations do uh, to make a difference in this regard? Um, there's sort of a list of things, um, but you can kind of start going down it by pointing to, for example, um, the, the question of to what degree do institutions. Um, foster the generation of what people call bridging ties. So that's just plain opportunities to interact across various boundaries of difference. Some institutions foster more of those. To meet. Some, or, to, eat, yeah. to meet. Okay. In, in any, any kind of way, to have some kind of interaction, <clears throat> um, perhaps even to share an activity or share a project at the sort of the higher up end of the spectrum. Um, but basically just um, relationships of some sort that link... Um, different communities with one another. And, you know, you can sort of imagine mapping institutions and organizations into, a, say, an ecology of, of relationships, of associations. Um, and some ecologies do more to foster those kinds of bridging ties than others. Um, the hypothesis is that those you know, ecologies of associations and organizations and institutional structures that do more to foster those bridging ties um, lead to higher social capital outcomes. Mm-hmm. So the point is, um, I would say that the kind of conversation about the relationship between diversity or homogeneity and, say, welfare or something like that um, should, needs to be cracked open, and one needs to ask a question instead about what are the mediating institutions mm-hmm. that do or do not put people in relationship to each other and um, we, we don't know what we can do as a society before we've scrutinized those and figured out if we could do things differently. So just to give you a couple of concrete examples, um, in this country, uh, transportation architecture, so freeways, how bus lines were designed, etc., were used in the middle of the 20th century to segregate the country in the north as well as the south. Um, and that, um, so if you look at Chicago and many of the negative dynamics in Chicago, they flow directly from choices that were made about transportation architecture in the middle of the 20th century. Uh, you know, we don't have to do that. We could have organized the transportation architecture quite differently in ways that would have facilitated more you know, movement of peoples across boundaries amongst them. And I think you would then have a very different kind of sense of social cohesion, uh, shared purpose, and that sort of thing in the city of Chicago harder for Chicago to overcome now that it's got this kind of dense transportation infrastructure. Um, but anyway, so I think, you know, but we have to think about those kinds of mediating institutions, organizations, as we try to understand the relationship between demography and shared purpose. That's so interesting, I think, because it's maybe an untold story, or maybe it's told, but it's <laughs> overlooked the, 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 the role of technology. Mm-hmm. Um, in shaping mm-hmm. society, it seems that's an addendum right. to it's just what what is there. 
Right. So how can we learn from those mistakes, or are we learning from those mistakes, or the other question, how does technology today um, shape the discourse, and how much has it been uh, seen in the wrong way? Because technology, this specific technology we talk about, the digital sphere, has has been perceived from what I, from what I can see more or less solely as a, as a progressive right. tool, and it's never a progressive tool, and it has sort of backfired very much because what happened in the digital sphere was a, mm -hmm. a leveraging of hatred. Um, right. So, how can we reclaim mm -hmm. technology for those purposes, as you say, connecting people? and creating relationships between mm -hmm. individuals or communities. Well, so I'm one of those people who always thinks that the story about technology is more about the people who use it than about the technology itself. So I always think, you know, to, to think about, to answer questions about technology, you have to come back to the question of, um, of people, sort of what, how people learn to do things with technology, how they develop their own interests in what technology should do. But the street is a street, you said. So yourself. The street, uh, yes, no, that's true. I mean, so yeah, I mean, it's an iterative process, right? I mean, sort of one generation lays down a pattern that the next generation is obliged to figure out how to work with. And but Facebook is Facebook, so you're in a way taking. Well, it's interesting. Away. I wonder. I mean, also here, okay, let's go going back to the transportation question for a second. Let's we can do that, and then which is Facebook is also a transportation. It absolutely is. Yeah. We'll an analogize. Yeah. Let's start with actual freeways, and then we'll come around to Facebook <laughs> and see if we can learn anything from the relationship between those. So actually, one of the most interesting election results this past November in the U.S. was a ballot measure in Los Angeles. Um, and it obviously didn't get a lot of attention because it's just one city. But it was the single, it was, it was a, a ballot measure in which the public voted to invest billions, tens of billions of dollars, I can't remember the exact number now, in a new transportation infrastructure for Los Angeles. It's the single uh, biggest public investment, public infrastructure investment in the country's history achieved by ballot initiative. Um, and where did this come from? This came from um, a group of organizers um, who, in the effort to kind of develop a new push, this is sort of to the issue of kind of policy change, mm -hmm. changing your paradigms, just decided to have some open-ended conversations about what's wrong in our lives, right? what are we not happy about, and so forth. And they kept going, you know, health, economic policy, sort of ringing the changes on all the conventional policy paradigms. And then at some meeting, when for the nth time, you know, somebody was really late getting to the meeting because of transportation in Los Angeles, they also hey, like, the thing we hate the most in Los Angeles is transportation. And gee, like, if you think about it, you realize that the problems with transportation in Los Angeles are just completely ruining family life, especially for working families, because the parents have to spend so much time traveling that their already very minimal time with children is dramatically reduced, has huge impacts on education and the kind of opportunity that those young people get. The issue of transportation is also one that sort of you know impacts economic opportunity more broadly, people's ability to, to get jobs, get to jobs, and that kind of thing. So it was like right in front of their faces the whole time, right? But they had trouble seeing it. Uh, but then when they did, you know, it sort of it, it opened everything up, and it did mean that then they had a new way to think about economic policy and a new way to think about education and supports for families and welfare and things like that. At any rate. So the point is just that although the transportation infrastructure was there and having these huge impacts, it's not unchangeable, but people have to become aware of the impacts it's having on their lives. And so Facebook, in some sense, must be a similar phenomenon. Like We're just kind of coming into awareness of what it's doing to our lives. And so then the question will be, as we come to understand that, how do we exercise power in relationship to Facebook? Um, and... You know, I think that question is one that breaks into, you know, there may be institutional responses to Facebook, you know, at the um, at various points, the government has, say, regulated radio, right, and hasn't regulated social media in the same sort of way, maybe that'll there be evolution there, or maybe the power of various kinds of social boycotts and so forth, or naming and shaming can make a difference, or... As I know you're sort of working on here in the Neiman space, um, issues of professional standards is the sort of profession of journalism 
as a you know, part of civil society, reaches out to Facebook and says, you know, hey, folks, you know, fess up. Like, you're in this space, and you guys, as individuals, have a responsibility to understand and adhere to the professional standards of journalism. So there are avenues of response, right? But we have to kind of wake up to um, how the technology is impacting our lives in the first instance. So I'm I'm wondering, we live in this kind of... Uh, Uh, we started out with that, but in a special uh, political m- moment, um, mm. and many people are wondering about how they should act. And uh, do you have any? <laughs> how do you think about that yourself? What is your is is the best way to go about uh, dealing with this time to organize then on a grassroots level, or what should you do to? If you're not happy with the way things are and you want to, you know, be a responsible citizen and change things. So I don't. So I think there's not simply one answer. I think it's not a kind of cookie cutter answer. And I think that's one of the challenges. Everybody sort of wants the, you know, the answer. I do. (laughs) (laughs) Where should I sign up? There's a part of a, a kind of know thyself element, right? Like you have to figure out which thing is the right thing for oneself, given you know, who one is, the resources one has available. But at any rate, I generally break the categories of thing uh, into everybody needs to prepare mm-hmm. uh, in the sense of going through a certain kind of reflective process about what you actually care about. And you're not talking about like buying, storing food. No, no, no. I mean, so food. Moral preparation, <laughs> yeah. personal preparation. New Zealand, maybe. Think, yeah. think Gandhi, <laughs> okay, right? Okay, okay. Yeah, I'm, I hear you. you know, it's her not basic Peter Seals, think Gandhi, yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. Like, you know, what, what matters to you and why? Yeah. Um, how do you make what matters to you about more than just yourself? Mm. Um, how do you get others to engage with you and what matters with you? Um, how do you find allies for the thing that matters to you? I mean, there's a preparatory reflection, I think, mm-hmm. that everybody should uh, undertake. And I, I can send you a website with a list of 10 <laughs> questions that okay. people can use if yeah. that's of interest. Yes, please. Um, and then I sort of break it into, you know, there's resisting, rebuilding, bridging, and empowering. Um, so resisting is obvious. You know, that sort of, you've got a kind of common adversary. In Trump, you can sort of just concentrate on resisting Mm -hmm. alternatively you could concentrate on um you know in this country what i think of as sort of the problem of the people that's not as healthy as it should be and that's Mm -hmm. a sort of rebuilding project um there's a project i think of as a bridging project again that's very u.s specific and that's got to do with overcoming the sort of polarization just by playing trying to 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 rewire um social connections right um and then the last one is empowering which is um The project is sort of, in some sense, more about education than anything else. Just uh, how do you help people recover the capacities to be civic and political agents? And that might be as, a, as an ordinary citizen who then picks one of the, you know, the resist or the rebuild or the bridge path. Or it might be empowering candidates who want to think about running for office and so forth. So I think those, you know, that gives, that's a sort of set of civic pathways people can choose. And I think it's important that people see that there's a choice Right. So, for example, um, I don't know if you went to any of the airport protests or tried to cover those or anything, but um, uh, you've the sort of stories that come out of different ones around the country, they all they all seem to run somewhat differently, mm. had kind of different flavor to them. But one complaint that I've heard in more than one case, uh, so I, I guess I heard this in Arizona and I heard this in Massachusetts, was um, sort of one say the folks who want to resist the kind of hardcore activists who are ready to go to jail for something and kind of get the mics and then shape the whole activity that way but there's all these people with kids or people have to get home to you know relieve the babysitter who they didn't come out there to get arrested like they wanted to do something and express something but getting arrested wasn't it Um, and maybe they're more in the kind of rebuilding you know zone than in the resisting zone and they they should have that you know pathway it should be kind of visible to them So, for example, a success story I heard was the, um, I think, the San Francisco airport, where apparently the the BART train you know, reaches the airport, and there were people standing at the um, the end of the BART train saying, you know, the hardcore stuff's down that <laughs> way. Go right if you're willing to get arrested. If you don't want to get arrested, go left. And the folks over there are doing this. The kid-friendly so stuff. The yeah. kid-friendly stuff, exactly. But so, you know, really thinking about there needing to be multiple kinds of civic pathway. And that's where the sort of the know thyself part comes in, mm-hmm. right? Like you got to know, you know, what, what, what do you care about? How much of yourself are you willing to commit to that? What are you willing to put at risk? And so forth. And, and so I think that kind of thinking um, is important up front. 
Um, how do you think about this moment? Do you think it is a is it a historic moment? Is it like a is it a breaking point? Is this a moment that will change things fundamentally, or what's the dignity kind of or uh, how how big the is this mo- significance of this moment? Yeah, or the um, indignity. Indignation. Yeah, significance was the one. Um, Thanks. So, I mean, I think it's—I do think it's a big moment, an historic moment. I—I don't think it's a moment about which we can make predictions, actually. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is simply because um, there are a heck of a lot of people acting, and in all kinds of different directions, and we just don't know, you know, precisely who is going to try what. And how that's all going to come together? I mean, I think so. It's, it's, it's a. I think in some sense, the most interesting feature of the historical moment is the sort of um, the distance from predictability that we have, right? In other words, um, it's, uh, what am I trying to say exactly? Um, you know, we we kind of generally operate trying to predict what's going to happen based on kind of reading a sort of set of current patterns. And what I'm trying to say is just there's so much action, so much agency that it's it breaks the possibility of prediction. So I'm trying to kind of encourage people to like not try to predict, but rather try to clarify the questions that are facing people. Mm-hmm. Because uh, that's what matters. People need to understand what the stakes are, what the choices are, and make their decisions about how to act. I think that's more important than trying to kind of project out from what we're currently seeing. It's just there's it, it's there's so much contestation. It could really go in a vast number of different directions. But still, you made, uh, as a classicist or historian, uh, a rather bold statement that we're <laughs> in, a, in a before and after period in a way, that we are living through a change Right. From a from a written to an oral culture, right. that's true, yeah. which doesn't have to do with the outcome of of, the, right. of, of this battle, I guess. Right. But could you elaborate a little on that? That seems to be a, yeah, a I don't know. fundamental is that just shift. A, I mean, is that is that everybody? Gonna, is that Europe too, or is that just the U.S. from the written to the oral? Yeah. Well, I mean, um, you probably have a more durable written culture than we do. Maybe. Yes. Yeah, but I think the technological shifts are similar. Yes. If you say. Uh, that now a street has also become a song. Right. Um, Facebook. Mm-hmm. So th- that that is a strange shift. Mm-hmm. There's a strange mixture. I think it is true, and it ties into what you said the other day when we had you here over for for a seminar. Had the chance to talk about questioning. So the, mm-hmm. the role of rhetoric. Mm-hmm. So I think that is, or the role of narratives. Mm-hmm. Narratives is about convincing people right. through a story that something is true, not through a. Mm-hmm. more abstract concept, which right. is maybe the product of an elitist uh, uh, literary project, that you have a constitution that mm-hmm. is the framework. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm, I'm yeah, it's, like, it's this weird combination of this new superstructure, which is Facebook and social media, mm-hmm. and then at the same time this very intimate conversation that goes on, which is, I guess, the oral culture that you're talking, part mm-hmm. of the oral, oral culture, that you're more convinced by the people around you in your own social mm-hmm. sphere and social me- media so it's more fragmentized mm-hmm. fragmentization at the same time as you have this new like you know architecture that's right. just there that's the weird combination well, the other thing i can't get my head around just to sort of throw out there i mean there's um and there must be somebody who has had something useful to say about this is um basically the volume of cultural production yeah right so there was i've, I've been meaning to kind of go figure out how much memory it takes to, like, what, you know, take the Greek and Roman <laughs> cultural legacy, like, how much memory does that add up to? Because, like, that's a knowable thing. We know mm. that, it, I, I don't know, happen to know it, but it's, it's knowable, mm. right? And then, you know, and then sort of 1900 to the present, and it's just sort of like, it's crushing, right? The contrast, the volume mm. of that. And so, I mean, it's a, a few different issues. I mean, one is just playing, how on earth do we human beings sort of just process that volume, and what does it mean to us? We don't, do we, we don't, right. Yeah. But what does it mean to us to feel, to feel swamped yeah. by the volume of, of cultural production? What downstream effects are there of that? And then, yeah, it also kind of, um, I think it does throw into question the, the survivability of all that older stuff, mm. you know? Just, like, just the level of, you know, quantities. Uh, very hard for it to um, compete so anyway, I don't know what to make of that exactly, but I mean, I think that's it's an issue, right? And that's um, 
a newer um, a newer issue for us too. But on a global level, it's 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 hard to say. But but I would like to go go back to what it means the the if there's a shift from written to right. oral, and you say there's a reconfiguring of institutions. Yeah. Um, that that's a pretty significant moment then that we're yeah, in yeah. so there is a 20th century and then there's a 21st yeah, century I think that's fair <laughs> <laughs> I think that's right yeah. so what, no what will happen and how will it happen who you said before power you used the word power where, where is the power in this um, who, who's, who's driving the car the changes <laughs> The car. Well, nobody, the car. Nobody's driving the changes, right? I mean, yeah. you know, it's a lot of contingency. I mean, for example, I'm, it really it blows my mind um, the contrast between, say, Facebook as a new technology and new kinds of biotechnology, um, say, genetic editing, gene editing, that kind of thing. Um, when Since the 70s, when new biological technologies like that emerge, the scientific community hits pause You know, they'll sort of put a moratorium on research of a certain kind while they, you know, organize committees and talk about what are the implications of this technology, what are the moral implications, what are the social implications, how do we think about that, what kind of parameters do we want to put on this new technology. Um, but, you know, social media, digital technology. No pulse. <laughs> no, exactly. No zone for reflection about what the impacts are. And, you know, arguably Facebook has done more to sort of transform mm. The conditions of our social and political life than any kind of biotechnology that's emerged in the last mm. 30 years. So, I mean, you know, that's a hard question of like, how do you um, build in a kind of zone of reflection to think about communications technologies in the way that we think about biotechnology um, and try to sort of establish sort of parameters for, you know, ethical um, technological progress? It seems to be that there is still a state in, in place that sort of was responsible for dealing with this question or, um, well, and, and, or it seems of like the research the biotechnology yeah, one was it really came from the scientific community yeah. it didn't come from the state I mean there's a point at which those two things got hooked up together yeah. and there was a kind of collaborative effort um, but it, it actually started um, from the scientists um, so that's the kind of questions like you know has Facebook woken up you know is there room for thinking about that there but the, the thing to do is probably to look farther out and to think about this issue of automation um, and its you know clear potential to transform mm. the world of work and to ask ourselves the question of um, you know where should, you know, should there be some pause buttons hit um, and should there be some sort of structures for conversation about how to think about this before all the technology just sort of pours into uh, the ecosystem um, so It sort of seems like, you know, the, the horse is well out of the stable on, on sort of Facebook and social media platforms, but maybe we can learn a little bit from that and uh, be a little more forward-looking. But it's interesting because it's in a way goes... So Karin's favorite term last semester was uh, duty or mm -hmm. in, in life. Yeah, right. So, so it goes... Always. <laughs> so it goes back to individual questions, right? Individuals have to yeah. make decisions about the responsibility of their work. But, um, yeah. But so on the other hand, I mean, this is where I, I think journalism has a big role to play here, right? I mean, I think, and journalism looks like it started to play it with regard to Facebook, right? Sort of saying to Facebook, no Because the business model was threatened. Uh, there, there's yeah, a, there's, there's that as well, it's true. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say is, um, I don't think you have to count on an individual to wake up to their own duty. I think that there are... Uh, entities, organizations out there that can call people to their duty. Yeah. And so I invite you in the yeah. world of journalism. Yeah, I'm happy to, to Yeah, call to the, do that. Exactly. Call folks working on say automation technology to mm. a sense of duty and and I even just you know drawing the contrast between the, the process in the biotechnology world and here might be an interesting thing. And there's sort of set of meetings, I can't remember the name of them, I could track it down for you if it's of interest, but I'm from the 70s that sort of set up a template for how people handled this. Um, so we've let for five more minutes. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm interested in the future, but I don't have to ask about the future. Um, okay. Which ties to the citizenship uh, question. Did you think about citizenship uh, as radical as disconnecting it from the nation state? Is that uh, something that is? See. valuable for to think about the 21st century right um, so I think that's one I think there's a lot of abstract attraction to that kind of idea but I don't think it's a, 
it's a viable idea in terms of real lived human experience. That is, I think the nation state structure is pretty durable. But only if um, you think of it from the nation state, not if, if you think of it from the refugee, for example. I mean, that's a pretty, of course, very, very, yeah. that, that's a pretty clear hope for, for, for people to belong or to have Absolutely. their rights. Absolutely. I mean, statelessness accepted. is a huge problem, right? And I think at the moment, um, you know, some nation states are doing a heck of a lot better at um, recognizing their own responsibility in relationship to the problem of statelessness. Um, so, you know, whatever Canada in contrast to the United States, for instance. Um, so, yes, I mean, I think um, participating in the nation state structure requires taking responsibility for statelessness. Um, those two things have to be bound together. Um, but, I, but I suppose I would approach it that way rather than um, thinking that there's um, a viable way to um, sort of transcend nation state structures. Um, but isn't one of the shifts, underlying shift from the 20th to the 21st century, also in a way the, the, the slow dismissal of human rights as something that's a constitutive, constituting global society? You think so? Yeah. Say, tell me more. Well, that's the basis on which uh, Europe is able to have people die in the Mediterranean. Right. right. Basically, that's right. It. In terms of the global, right? It's not their right. We don't. We not. We don't have to deal with. Them. I see. Right. Okay. I misunderstood you. Thank you. Um, well. Uh, otherwise, you couldn't justify that. Otherwise, you couldn't justify people dying. Right. I mean, uh, it's that's a hard one, right? In the sense that I wouldn't say that that's necessarily um, indication of the death of a human rights. I think or change. certainly there's an endangerment without any question. I guess I'm just, you know, whatever, this is my, um, uh, trying to avoid being pessimistic. Yeah. Right? So I'm trying to, you know, we're not at the end of the story. So, it's, um, one, you know, aspires to a reversal in terms of that dynamic. But, um, uh, what am I trying to say exactly? Um, I think, so, I mean, the, the deaths of refugees in the Mediterranean, um, is a problem of, in effect, stateless people, right? So what I'm trying to suggest, I suppose, is that the responsibilities to those people, um, e even in human rights terms, um, are compatible with the nation-state framework, but the nation-state has to recognize its responsibility for stateless people. And so I do think there is a kind of global governance question that we have not succeeded in addressing at the level of global governance as to sort of how the network of states um, takes responsibility for stateless people. Um, and I, yes, I do think there's a human rights justification for doing that, but I think there's also a supplementary or complementary uh, sort of duty that flows out of the nation-state structure itself. Like The nation-state structure is viable only if um, the problem of stateless people is something that can be addressed in the nation-state structure. I mean, that's an argument that goes back to Hannah Arendt, Right, I mean, so she made this argument um, in a book called *The Origins of Totalitarianism* um, about sort of the, you know, the problem of stateless people in a context of a sort of nation-state structure and what the, uh, you know, the duties of nation-states are given that problem. Um, and yeah, I mean, but, but to to make this argument about nation-states um, is not to abandon a human rights framework. I mean, it, it rests the whole thing rests on a human rights framework, um, but couples a sort of commitment to the notion of uh, universal human rights um, with a claim about um, the most um, efficacious way of securing those rights. Um, so what I'm trying to say, I suppose, is I agree with you that there's been a failure um, in you know, our immediate, you know, the sort of recent past and a failure that doesn't look like we're moving away from um, in the short term. But um, I would say it's a failure at the level of a sort of structure that ought to be able to um, defend human rights um, as opposed to being a kind of failure of the concept of human rights. I mean, at least we're acknowledging that it is a failure and that's we do that from a basis of uh, you know, admitting and, and, and agreeing on the fact that there are human rights that should be followed, but now we're not doing that. So at least that's kind of the basis of the argument and the discussion. Totally. So I'm, yeah... This is an old discussion. Yeah, I mean, it's a hard way. I mean, sort of in, in another way of putting the question is, what does it take for um, an, an, you know, a nation to recognize its own uh, dependence on a human rights framework, yeah. right? So I think that's the thing that you're pointing to, really, is sort of the kind of erosion 
of people's understanding of nation states on the basis of a human rights framework. And I, I would agree with you. I think that there is an erosion there, and I think that there's um, you know, kind of a recovery project that's necessary. Which, in a way, takes us back to the beginning. What's the... What's the what's the, what's the, what's the what is the citizen? What's the way forward? But what is it? Sort of what's the what's the framework of, of how to yeah. think about politics? And our conversation so far has always shifted between optimism <laughs> and pessimism. And I think this time we started more optimistic and then I dragged it down. Sorry about that. But thank you, Danielle, for for uh, sharing this uh, journey. Um, through thank time. you so much. Well, thank you, guys. This was Anger Management, the democracy podcast of 60 Hertz in cooperation with Aftenblad at Niemann Foundation and Berlin Community Radio. My name is Georg Dietz. Um, I had the pleasure to talk with Karen Patterson uh, and Daniel Allen, professor in Harvard, about how to approach the present moment, what it means to be a citizen, and how we move forward. Tune in next week with um, the famous and great Peter Gallison. Project. <laughs> This was Anger Management, the democracy podcast of 60 Hertz in cooperation with Aftenblad at Niemann Foundation and Berlin Community Radio. My name is Georg Dietz. Um, I had the pleasure to talk with Karen Patterson uh, and Daniel Allen, professor in Harvard, about how to approach the present moment, what it means to be a citizen, and how we move forward.